You are listening to the Today I Found Out podcast, where each weekday we provide an interesting story that is going to feed your brain. You can read more great articles like this by going to todayifoundout.com. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Today I Found Out Daily Knowledge Podcast with me, Simon Whistler. And in this episode, you're going to hear the story of a man who was sent to the electric chair twice. And in the bonus fact section, you're going to learn a bit more about the gruesome history of the electric chair in the United States. Just before we get started with the show, I'd like to mention that this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, go to squarespace.com and use the one-word offer code DAILYKNOWLEDGE. Now, this podcast is produced by todayifoundout.com, one of the most popular daily knowledge websites on the internet, with around 2 million visitors per month. So, it's fair to say we do know a fair bit about websites. Before accepting this sponsorship, we looked into Squarespace in great detail and can say that it's a really great service. It's ridiculously easy to use and you can just drag and drop everything until it looks just perfect on your site. Even if you have no idea what you're doing from a technical standpoint, you're still going to be able to create a beautiful-looking website that's also really functional. And if you do struggle at any point, you'll find they have amazing support operating 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. So if you're looking to expand your online presence, or create a stunning online portfolio, or even open an online store, Squarespace is the place to start. It starts at just $8 a month, including covering your domain and hosting, and again, you can get 10% off if you use our offer code Daily Knowledge, and there's no space between the two words there. Please check it out, and thank you for supporting our sponsors who help keep this show going. Now, let's get right into today's show. There was once a 16-year-old sentenced to death who had to have that sentence carried out twice. The teenager was Willie Francis, the youngest of 13 children in a poor black family living in Louisiana. Francis supposedly murdered 53-year-old pharmacist Andrew Thomas in St. Martinville, Louisiana, in 1944. Thomas was found shot five times at close range, just outside of his home. Unfortunately for Francis, he had to go through the ordeal of being strapped to the electric chair, gruesome Gertie, and having it switched on both times, with a little over a year separating the instances. The first time he found himself in the chair was on May 3, 1946. While being escorted to this execution attempt, Francis said that the deputy told him, Don't worry, Willie. It won't hurt you very much. You won't even feel it. Francis said he thought, I wasn't worried at all whether it would hurt me. I was more worried about the fact that it was going to kill me. But it turns out the chair was improperly set up as the two in charge of setting it up, Captain Epfi Foster and an inmate who was also an electrician, Vincent Venezia, were drunk at the time. When the switch was flipped to kill the boy, rather than this happening, he simply started jerking around violently in the chair. Francis described it this way. I wanted to say goodbye too. Captain Foster had cheerfully said, Goodbye, Willie, before throwing the switch. But I was so scared, I couldn't talk. My hands were closed tightly. Then, I could almost hear it coming. The best way I can describe it is, Wham! Zzz. It felt like a hundred and a thousand needles and pins were prickling in me all over, and my left leg felt like somebody was cutting it with a razor blade. I could feel my arms jumping at my sides, and I guess my whole body must have jumped straight out. I couldn't stop the jumping. If that was tickling, it was sure a funny kind. He'd been told it would tickle, and then he'd die. I thought for a minute I was going to knock the chair over. Then I was all right. I thought I was dead. 
Then they did it again. The same feeling all over. I heard a voice say, Give me some more juice down there. And in a little while, somebody yelled, I'm giving you all I got now. I think I must have hollered for them to stop. They say I said, take it off. I know that was certainly what I wanted them to do. Turn it off. Finally, when it was clear the electric chair wasn't going to kill him, they removed Francis from it and took him for examination by the witnessing coroner, Dr. Yungu. Upon being removed, one of the drunk executioners, Captain Foster, yelled at him, I missed you this time, but I'll get you next week if I have to use an iron bar. Now, you might think they'd simply fix the problem with the chair and carry out his execution again straight away, as Foster had suggested. Indeed, this was what was initially planned. The problem was that Francis's father, Frederick Francis, unhappy with the legal representation his son had received in his trial, approached a lawyer, one Bertrand de Blanc, who had been a good friend of Andrew Thomas before Francis had supposedly murdered him. Frederick Francis had no money to pay de Blanc, but offered to work for him as a form of payment, something de Blanc politely refused. In the end, he did get some vegetables from Frederick Francis's garden for his over-year-long fight for Francis's life. De Blanc was also later helped by attorneys from the NAACP and a judge, J. Scully Wright. When de Blanc took on the case, he initially did not do so because he thought Francis was innocent, but because he felt, It is not humane to make a man go to the chair twice. The state fell down on its job. It made Willie suffer the torture of facing death without completing it. My few critics will soon be dead and buried, but the principles involved in this case of freedom from fear of cruel and unusual punishment and that of due process and double jeopardy will live as long as the American flag waves on this continent. De Blanc's views on Francis's guilt soon changed after he began looking into the case in detail and was appalled by what he found. Willie Francis was not initially arrested for the murder of Andrew Thomas. Rather, the police arrested him 150 miles away from where the murder took place for unrelated reasons. Francis was traveling, visiting one of his sisters. The police were looking for drug traffickers and spotted Francis walking along with a suitcase, so arrested him and subsequently interrogated him. It quickly became clear that Francis was not a drug trafficker, but because Francis was stuttering during his interrogation, in actuality, he simply was someone who stuttered when he spoke, they decided he must be guilty of something. Despite the fact that he had no legal representation at any point during the interrogation and the police quite literally had nothing on him, they pressed him, and supposedly within minutes he confessed to the murder of Andrew Thomas, as well as confessed to assaulting and robbing a man in Port Arthur, where Francis had just arrived at. Francis then wrote and signed the following confession concerning his murder of Andrew Thomas. I, Willie Francis, now 16 years old, I stole the gun from Mr. Ogeezy, the deputy August Fusilier, at St. Martinville, Louisiana, and kill Andrew Thomas, November 9th, 1944, or about the time at St. Martinville, Louisiana, it was a secret about me and him. I took a black purse with card in it, four dollars in it. I also took a watch on him and sell it in New Iberia, Louisiana. That all I am said, I throw gun away, 38 pistol. This first statement also included typed bits from the police, stating that they had not coerced Francis into confessing. The next day, Francis wrote a second confession while now in the custody of Sheriff Wes Weber of St. Martinville, this one not including any bit about not being coerced, but fixing the date to be the correct morning of the murder and adding concrete details to more precisely fit the crime, though still leaving a lot of unanswered questions. Yes. Willie Francis confesses that he killed Andrew Thomas on November the 8th, 1944. I went to his house about 11.30pm. 
I hide back in his garage about half hour. When he came out the garage, I shot him five times. That's all I remember. Scenarily, Willie Francis. Francis also later stated that there were two others involved in the murder, but then retracted this and said he had done it alone. All right, case closed. He was guilty, right? I mean, he confessed, didn't he? Well, besides the fact that it's not at all unheard of of people to confess to just about anything while being interrogated, let alone a teenager being the one being coerced, and the fact that at the time, police on the whole frequently were quite brutal during interrogations of minorities, there are a number of fishy things about the supposed evidence against him. For instance, the gun that Francis supposedly used to murder Thomas belonged to the sheriff's deputy. The gun was lost before the trial, as were the recovered bullets. Suspiciously, they were lost while in transit to the FBI crime lab where they were going to be analyzed. They didn't bother to check the gun for fingerprints, or even to check that the bullets found in Thomas's body came from the gun that was eventually lost, nor even that the caliber bullets found could be fired by that particular gun. The deputy, whose gun was stolen, supposedly reported it missing two months before the murder. The problem is, there was no record of him reporting it stolen, so we have to just go on the word of the deputy and the word of the district attorney, who said he remembered the deputy mentioning it had been stolen. The deputy once threatened to kill Andrew Thomas, as he was convinced that Thomas was attempting to have an affair with his wife, among other women in the town. Before the arrest of Francis, most in the town just assumed that an angry boyfriend or husband had murdered Thomas, as Thomas frequently spent time with many women of the town in their homes when their husbands weren't around. The pocket watch that Francis supposedly stole from Thomas after the murder and then sold at a jeweler's was never found, and the owner of Riviere's jewellery store, when Francis and the police showed up, said he didn't remember any such transaction. His records did show he had purchased a watch from someone for $5 around the appropriate time, whether it was the watch in question or not, but he stated he had never seen Francis before. He was never asked to testify about the watch Francis supposedly stole. When Thomas's neighbors, Alvin and Ida Van Brocklin, heard gunshots, Ida looked out of the window and saw a car with the lights on in the driveway outside of Thomas's house after the gunshots. The car was not there in the morning when the body was found. Being a poor black teen, Francis never learned to drive a car, nor had access to one. This evidence didn't come out until after Francis's first execution attempt. Thomas was hit with five shots from a six-shooter, including two in the side, two in the back, and one in the head, all in rapid fire, according to the Brocklins. This would seem to indicate the shooter was an excellent marksman, or at least well familiar with the particular weapon used, something that is unlikely Francis was, having never owned or shot a gun before supposedly stealing the deputy's gun. So how did Francis get convicted, given the lack of evidence other than his confession? First, the two public defenders assigned to him, James Randlett Parkinson and Otto J. Mesteyer, tried to get the judge to throw out Francis's not guilty plea and submit one of guilty, which would have guaranteed the death penalty. Under Louisiana state law at the time, anyone who pled guilty of murder automatically got the death penalty. They did not bother to try to get a change in venue, even though the arrest of Francis had been widely talked about in the town for over a month, with many thinking Francis was guilty while others were convinced he was being set up. Francis was well known around town, working odd jobs for numerous people, and many of those who knew him described him as having a very kind and gentle disposition, with his only major flaw being that he was a bit of a prankster. 
Next, Francis's lawyers waived their right to an opening statement at the beginning of the trial. They further did not raise one single objection during the brief trial in which the prosecutors argued it had been a simple robbery, which made no sense in that Francis knew Thomas quite well, working for him at odd jobs off and on, and apparently got along quite well with him. When the prosecutors rested, Francis's lawyers stood up and said they had no evidence to offer on behalf of the accused and rested their case, rather than actually doing anything to defend their client, which any even halfway competent attorney could have done easily given the complete lack of evidence against Francis. The one thing they did do, according to the trial minutes, was make a few closing remarks, though these remarks were not recorded. After that, it was just a matter of the twelve white jurors, many of which had known and liked Andrew Thomas, finding Francis guilty and sentencing him to death. So now, fast forward back to after the first execution attempt. Tablonc did not initially try to argue the results of Francis's trial or anything about how it was conducted, which probably would have been a dead end at the time, at least in terms of getting Francis's second execution date moved back in time. Rather, he argued that Francis's sentence had already been carried out, and it would constitute cruel and unusual punishment to carry it out a second time. Because this did not contest Francis's guilt or bring up race or anything of the sort, de Blanc was able to get a stay on execution in the few days he had to work with before the set execution date. Over the next year, he appealed this argument all the way up to the Supreme Court, during which time the story became a national sensation, with the general public mostly seeming to support letting Francis off, or at least simply giving him a life sentence, rather than executing him again, either because they felt it was inhumane to make a person go through an execution twice, or because they believed the boy innocent. Initially, the Supreme Court was heavily against de Blanc's argument, 7-2, but one of the justices, Harold Burton, managed to convince two others, Justice Frank Murphy and Justice William O. Douglas, to change their vote, stating, How many deliberate and intentional reapplications of electric current does it take to produce a cruel, unusual, and unconstitutional punishment? If five attempts would be cruel and unusual, it would be difficult to draw the line between two, three, four, and five. The vote now stood at 5-4 against Francis, but just barely, and that one of the justices, Felix Frankfurter, from a moral standpoint, sided with Francis, but from a legal perspective, couldn't bring himself to vote in his favour. Frankfurter wrote to Burton of his decision, stating, I am sorry that I cannot go with you, but I am weeping no tears that you are expressing a dissent. So in the end, they ruled against Francis, 5-4, the day after his 18th birthday. However, Justice Frankfurter was so distraught over the issue that despite him ruling against Francis, he enlisted the aid of a friend in Louisiana who was also an attorney on friendly terms with the Louisiana governor, Jimmy Davis, to try to convince the governor to commute Francis's sentence to life imprisonment. This attempt failed. While many lawyers would have conceded defeat after losing their case in front of the Supreme Court, de Blanc had not yet begun to fight. He started again this time arguing that the trial had been a sham and that new evidence had been unearthed, including the above-stated bit that an eyewitness had seen a car with the lights on outside the pharmacist's house directly after the shots were fired. With this, he hoped to get Francis a new trial, this time featuring an actual defence. The problem was that the date of the new execution had already been set, and, as he suspected he would when he chose the alternative argument above which he took to the Supreme Court, de Blanc was having trouble getting that date moved back so he could go through the necessary legal motions to get a new trial. 
In the end, Francis himself, who had been telling de Blanc he didn't want a second trial, finally convinced him to drop the matter two hours before the scheduled execution, as he stated he didn't want to cause his mother, Louise Francis, any more stress. She was ill at the time over the matter. De Blanc honored his request, and on May the 9th, 1947, Francis was again strapped to gruesome Gertie, this time set up correctly. After being asked if he had any last words, he replied, Nothing at all and they flipped the switch, making him the 24th person to die sitting on that horrid chair. It should be noted here that despite the mountain of questionable events that led up to Francis's conviction, there is a slight possibility that Francis did kill Thomas, with emphasis on slight. One of Thomas's IDs was supposedly found in Francis's wallets when he was initially interrogated, and the wallet itself was said to have belonged to Thomas. Although it seems fishy that Francis would be carrying that around for several months after supposedly murdering Thomas, the one bit of evidence that could have connected him to the crime. It seems likely this evidence could have easily been planted or simply made up, as no such physical evidence was ever presented. Francis also supposedly later led police to where he'd thrown the gun away, a few blocks from where Thomas's house was. There was no gun there at the time, but a couple of months before this, some unknown citizen had supposedly found a gun in that exact spot, and some other unknown citizen supposedly claimed they had found a holster around the same area. In both cases, they supposedly gave the items to the police. Again, there were no witnesses around to corroborate any of this, nor was there any legal representation for Francis at this time. His first chance to talk to a lawyer didn't come until a month after he was imprisoned, just six days before his trial. So again, the evidence against Francis is very questionable. However, the really odd thing was that throughout the period de Blanc and the NAACP were fighting for Francis's life, he never took back his confession and seemed to maintain that he had killed Thomas, though never giving any reason why and denying the reasons stated in court. The one and only instance he seems to have stated he didn't do it is when he wrote on his jail cell wall, Of course, I am not a killer. It was speculated he might have been protecting his family by keeping his mouth shut. Whatever the case, just before he died, Francis sent a letter to the Shreveport Sun stating his goodbyes to those who had supported him, and finishing with, To everyone, my best farewell wishes I send, and may none reach my dreadful end. Bonus Facts while Willie Francis was the first known person to fail to be killed after a government-sanctioned killing by electrocution, the first already dead man to be executed twice via the electric chair was Fred von Wormer. Wormer was executed in 1903 via the electric chair. After being pronounced dead, his body was removed to the morgue, where it was discovered he was still alive. Thus, they returned him to the electric chair. However, on his way back to the chair, he died. Despite this, they strapped him into the chair and fried him again. Just in case. Bonus fact 2. William Kemmler was the first ever human to be executed via the electric chair all the way back in 1890. During this execution, they first started by electrocuting Kemmler for 17 seconds. Then, when they found his heart was still beating and he was still breathing, they fried him again after the generator had recharged. In the end, it took eight minutes to kill him, from first shocking to death. While it was a pretty gruesome affair, causing one spectator to note, they would have done better using an axe, and another stating it was far worse than hanging. It should be noted that Kemmler was seemingly rendered unconscious at the beginning and never regained consciousness throughout the ordeal. Kemmler's crime was murdering his wife with a hatchet. He almost got out of such a fate until Thomas Edison made his now famous arguments that the electric chair, which had been invented in his industrial laboratory, was a painless method of execution, which helped sway the court on the matter. 
Bonus fact three. Three years after Francis died sitting on gruesome Gertie, the Supreme Court reversed a murder conviction where the primary evidence was simply that the 15-year-old had confessed to the murder after five hours of interrogation, during which the boy was alone with the police. The Supreme Court's ruling was based on that, We cannot believe that a lad of tender years is a match for the police in such a contest. He needs counsel and support if he is not to become the victim first of fear, then of panic. He needs someone on whom to lean, lest the overpowering presence of the law, as he knows it, crush him. So it would appear that had de Blanc got to take that argument to the Supreme Court, Francis might have gotten off. You just listened to the Today I Found Out Daily Knowledge podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace.com, where you can find everything you need to easily create a high-quality website without all the hassle and time normally needed to do that. Remember to use the one-word discount code DAILYKNOWLEDGE to get 10% off when you sign up at Squarespace.com. Thanks for supporting the show, and thanks for listening.